Good morning again, Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. This is Dave McGuire uh, bringing you some more Sunday School content. Um, we are in week eight now of, stra- of uh, let's see, what's it called? Every Believer Confident, uh, which is um, Apologetics for the Ordinary Christian by Mark Farnham. Um, we've reached the point now where we're talking about strategies for apologetic encounters. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we get to, uh, spend together talking about, uh, the, uh, effectiveness of your word, talking about the effectiveness of your spirit, that we are able to go out into the world and, and share, uh, those things that, uh, truly matter and truly are, um, important to the, the lives of the people around us. Thank you for bringing these people into our lives and, and thank you for um, the, uh, the privilege and honor to be your ambassadors in a fallen world. Uh, we pray that uh, you will continue to bring folks to us and that we will um, study and uh, that we will um, make real the, uh, uh, the life and the work and the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This is my father's world, and to my singing, my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. Beautifully said 120 years ago by Maltby Babcock, if this is our father's world, and it is, then we can and should be confident that as his ambassadors, our basis for forth telling the gospel is solid. We have the rock of truth on which to stand. Confidence is key in apologetic encounters. Not just confidence in what you know, but confidence that if you're confronted with something you don't know, haven't studied, or is an apparent contradiction to the truth of Scripture, um, you know that there will be an answer for those things. Um, It will happen. Don't be discouraged. But Christian, you know more than you think you do. Sitting as you do under the discipline of Pastor Tim, absorbing the scripture through regular reading, studying the creeds and confessions of the historic church, and preparing through classes like this, fill your mind with the resources you need to make a succinct and effective defense of your faith. These are good and necessary things. Preparation is powerful. One cannot prepare for every eventuality, though and you are bound to come up against an argument or a concept that you are unfamiliar with. But God, rich in mercy, does not leave you on your own. This is where we need reminders. Scripture written on our hearts, which tells us we have the spirit of truth living within us. That's in John fourteen seven. The spirit brings to mind what we have previously learned. It's John fourteen twenty six. John 16 tells us the Spirit will declare the truth to us. Matthew 28 says all authority in heaven and earth belong to Jesus. And Matthew 28 also tells us Jesus is with us at all times. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and will bring to mind things we've forgotten. I know I've been in the middle of a deep existential conversation and have gone totally blank not knowing where in the world I was going to go with my questions or responses next. And all of a sudden, a way of thinking about something in a 
totally new and unexpected way just rocketed up within me. I was speaking with a friend about how we know what we know. She indicated that she didn't believe that Jesus ever existed. I asked her if she knew that her belief is not shared by any serious scholars, either believers or unbelievers. She replied she did not know that, but that she chose not to believe that he existed anyway. Despite the overwhelming evidence I asked, yes, she replied. I replied that I can't, I just can't live with that sort of blind faith. She was shocked, and all of a sudden it hit her. Despite the evidence, despite what smart people have to say, she was living by faith, the exact blind faith she accused Christians of having. When the Holy Spirit, and not our own mental and verbal acumen, is the basis of our apologetic, we find confidence that he will support us in the work to which we're called. Of course, it won't happen every time. Sometimes we need to learn lessons of humility or preparedness or any number of useful things. Uh, But most assuredly, the Spirit will bless an encounter, entered into in kindness, and handled with grace and mercy. Farnham, in his book, Every Believer Confident, lays out a number of strategies for effective encounters. Number one, listen for mistaken beliefs. Items like, the divinity of Jesus was only settled by Constantine 300 years after Jesus died. There are thousands of variations from manuscript to manuscript of the New Testament, or so many other facts that people blindly believe. I put facts in quotes there. Why do they believe these things without evidence, without argument? They want to. It's the same reason Bart Ehrman's book, uh, books hit the New York Times bestseller list, or why every Easter time, um, Time Magazine or National Geographic runs stories and quote-unquote documentaries called something like Finding the Real Jesus. Now, the statements above may be ones that you're familiar with. The first one, the Council of Nicaea simply affirmed what the church had taught from the very beginning, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. It was in response to heresy, not a consolidation of various competing beliefs about Jesus' nature. The second one, the thousands of variants include punctuation, spelling errors, and reflect the robustness of the availability of written copies of the gospel. None of the variants would alter the core teachings of Christianity. But it could be that the statements they're putting forth um, aren't ones you're familiar with. Their presupposition is very likely that they are able to rely and rest on their own reason to determine the moral framework of the universe and what is true and not true. Our presupposition is that this world is God's and that everything in it declares his glory. So you can rest assured that a seeming contradiction of this fact has an explanation that there is very likely work already done on the topic which you may go seek out. I may not know how to answer the objection right away, but I know that there is an answer. So if you hear something you know to be incorrect, but you don't have the answer yet, here are some questions you can ask. I've never heard that before. Where'd you come across that info? You know, I don't know anything about that topic. If it is true, how does that make Christianity untrue? Or, I don't know. That seems, it really doesn't seem to reflect how we know the world works. 
Challenging something on a thing they think they know is uncomfortable. It's hard, but it's necessary to help them in questioning those things that they take to be true in their fight against God. A defense of the faith must include a defense of scripture, as an example. If we don't challenge erroneous beliefs about the authorship, veracity, and preservation of scripture, we certainly can't then refer back to its self-attesting quality later in the discussion. Number two, now let's talk about logical fallacies. Rationality, again, keep in mind that this is likely what your conversation partner believes to be the basis of what she knows is true, her own rationality. Rationality requires logic. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, is a deeply irrational statement. If someone asks you how you know something is true, it does not logically follow that because I feel it to be true is true. (laughs) Feelings are subjective and therefore differ from person to person. If the truth of something varies from person to person, it is not absolute and therefore cannot be true. Logic means we seek to provide reasons for the beliefs we hold. Our core beliefs are, are grounded in the revelation of God in his word. As Christians, we should seek to believe only what we have good reason to believe. Farnham writes, that eliminates beliefs based on conspiracy theories, wishful thinking, fear, hatred, and a host of other faulty foundations. We dare not commit logical fallacies ourselves if we are going to critique the fallacies of those who reject the truth of the Christian faith. So in other words, Christian, check yourself. Check out what you believe. I know this is a series dedicated to defending your faith, but the principles here extend out so much further. Are you engaging in reckless and specious speculation about the world around you? The government your employer, the Illuminati, Russian collusion, etc. I'm careful not to pick out any one end of the political spectrum, but rather to help us really hone in on obstacles that may keep you from effectively sharing your faith with others. The most common kind of logical fallacy you'll encounter goes something like this. We live in a materialistic, cold, chaotic, purposeless, impersonal universe. Our lives are without inherent meaning, and there is no such thing as eternal punishment or reward. Therefore, we must be kind to one another. It is very clear when laid out like this, the conclusion is no way logic, uh, in no way, excuse me, logically follows the premise. When you're leading someone through an exercise like this, Remember this from a few weeks ago, we were restating their position. Make sure to check in for agreement, often. Yeah, something like, we live in a materialistic world, right? That's, materialism is this, the only thing that exists. There is no supernatural. We live in a chaotic world. There's no order to things outside of the order that we see. We live in a purposeless world. So keep checking in with your conversation partner to make sure that they agree with the adjectives that you're providing or the descriptors. 
Number three, now we're going to look at something called implicit bias. Everyone assumes certain things to be true. These are unchallenged presuppositions that they hold about the way that the world works. The fact is, though, when talking with someone through their worldview, you're likely to stumble upon some of these things. And, and when you begin to question them, they can be shown to be untrue. And the truth is no one likes to be proved wrong. Conversely, there are lots of us who find perverse pleasure in proving someone wrong. I know that's a sin I've struggled with. This is why the method of approach is so important. Examine your heart before you engage in these sorts of discussion. Ask for the Lord's guidance through prayer and meditation to remove that sin from your conversation. Recall that scripture tells us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. This will serve as a reminder that our manner should reflect our message. Farnham also mentions here the sunk cost fallacy. This will be especially true when a religious or political ideology is deeply held by your conversation partner. If leftist politics or Americanism, etc., is the thing in which the unbeliever finds his identity, they will have sunk thousands of hours and likely dollars into those beliefs. Their entire community is also likely all wrapped up in that ideology. Thus, we can see that abandoning, abandoning those false beliefs would come at an extremely high price. This reminds us of the necessity of the Holy Spirit in convicting the soul. To count everything but Christ as loss and to give up everything you know would be an impossible task without the reassurance which comes from the regeneration of our hearts. Number four, Farnham goes on to talk about looking for positions that would be embarrassing to maintain. This is not one that I'm actually all that familiar with, and I haven't utilized it much on my own in my own conversation. So I'm going to quote Farnham here. He says, when I <clears throat> for look for positions that would be embarrassing to maintain, every worldview besides the Christian faith results in logical conclusions that are an embarrassment in a civilized society. For example, an agnostic acquaintance of mine is an avid participant in state politics. He frequently spends time in the state capitol trying to forbid reference to any religious basis in legislation. In other words, he does not want religion to play any part in any laws that are passed. He is a typical example of a secular humanist. When I bring up the explicitly Christian foundation of Martin Luther King's legacy in the civil rights movement, or of William Wilberforce's battle to end slave, the slave trade in England, however, he, be, he becomes uncomfortable. He knows that if there, he is to be consistent with his principle, he would have to condemn the Christian foundations for these movements. But to do so would be to say that it would have been better to wait for secular activists to resist slavery. This is a claim no one wants to make because it smacks of racism, a racism that is condemned in scripture, but not consistently so from a secular humanist standpoint. A fifth approach is to capitalize on universally held values. A person who claims that there is no universal right and wrong and claims to believe in subjective morality cannot live consistently with that viewpoint. 
We all agree that slavery, rape, trafficking, and child abuse are universally wrong, but only the Christian worldview can account for why. Human beings are made in the image of God and thus have inherent value and worth. Their dignity should be preserved, and the most innocent among us should be protected. Counter that with the worldview espoused above. There's no reason to care about the plight of the oppressed if we are simply the grandchildren of ugly bags of protoplasm, fish with lungs, and naked apes. The sixth approach. The, this next one is difficult. You need to be able to call your conversation partner to back up assertions she's making, which she believes to be arguments. Now, what do I mean by this? If I were to say science has disproved the Bible, what would you say? Hopefully by this time in the series, we recognize this as an opportunity to jump in with a clarifying question, which will cause the unbeliever to begin to question her position. What do you mean by that? Or why do you think that are good ways to begin this line of questioning? I say this because it's, I say this is difficult because again, it's uncomfortable. All of this is uncomfortable, especially in the world we live in today but I encourage you to remain brave in the face of a world who desperately needs the gospel and at the same time wants nothing to do with it. The seventh approach, and finally, wisely pursue those God has placed in your life. Don't push too hard and don't back away too easily. This takes patience, practice, and time. To get a feel for how much someone can take, and how vulnerable to make yourself in, is a sense that in most people develops over time. You're going to make mistakes. You're occasionally going to say the wrong thing. We are still sinners after all. It's unavoidable this side of glory. But use these opportunities to humanize yourself. We are not moral perfectionists. We are sinners saved by grace. There's nothing special about us, and all we're looking to do here is give the good news of reconciliation, new life, and new hope to those around us. Get to the root of objections, in conclusion. If they are intellectual, answer accordingly. But in all honesty, they are, those intellectual objections are, are rarely there. Most of the time, the objections you encounter will be deep-seated emotional issues. These are folks who have been hurt by life, hurt by those who have claimed to love them, or worst of all, hurt by the church. Answer their hurt and their anger with gentleness and respect. Show them the love they should have seen from those previously in their lives who claim the name of Christ. Make that your prayer today, Christian. Thanks. And talk to you next time.